Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. Our guest this week is Mike Zimmerman, who's a partner at Main Sequence Ventures, the innovation fund of the CSIRO, the Australian government agency responsible for scientific research. Mike has adopted Australia as his home after more than 20 years as a founder, executive and investor in a wide range of technology companies both here and in the US. Mike is a committed deep tech investor, passionate about working with founders to help them achieve their personal ambitions while working with their companies to bring step change in new value to existing industries. At Main Sequence, Mike leads the Supercharge Industrial Productivity Challenge and also invests in the Feed 10 Billion People Challenge and the Next Intelligence Leap Challenge. Mike sits on the board of the Australian Investment Council, the Investment Committee for the State of Queensland Business Development Fund and the Global Board of the Stanford Graduate School of Business Alumni Association. Earlier in his career, he worked with Bain & Company and Goldman Sachs. He has an MBA from Stanford University and a BA from Amherst College. But you'll be hard-pressed to find anyone who has the combination of Mike's experience, intelligence, insight, all while being super generous with his time. Mike, it's fantastic to see you. Thank you. It's great to be here and great to see you as well. Um, San Francisco is the home of technology and venture and I think a lot of people who are interested in those things sort of fantasize about living there. What was it like to grow up in that area? <laughs> well, yeah, my world was not very techie growing up. I grew up in some ways before the tech sector. The others, I had a, a pretty urban upbringing in a you know single parent home, pretty modest and so not a lot of gadgets and electronics and things like that around. So I think for me, there was probably more influence on anything. My mother was uh, super hardworking, as I mentioned, single parent, raising two boys on her own. And then also later in life became an entrepreneur and started a, a very successful not-for-profit organization and just worked her butt off on it, but was super passionate about the, the mission and the goal. And so those were probably bigger influences on me than than the sort of Silicon Valley legends going on a few decades after I was being brought up. And did you sort of absorb that from your mum, that work ethic and desire to do well in life? I, yeah, I think there, there was definitely a, a heavy influence there. I would say there were a couple things. One was definitely hard work, definitely trying to do the right thing. By her, that was always strong, even though we didn't always have a lot. I think she's pretty focused on the kids having strong values and, again, just that kind of ethic of of being constructive and know the difference between right and wrong. And then I think the other thing was taking advantage of opportunities. So as I mentioned, we 
I don't want to make too big a deal of it, but we didn't have that much. But we were given some pretty amazing opportunities through scholarships and, you know, my own situation, financial aid coming through the U.S. university system and things like that. And and it was very much a feeling of like, hey, you have this opportunity, so try and make the most of it. And I think that's one of the things that's so exciting about entrepreneurship for me as I kind of shifted in my career is hey, you have this opportunity to to make a dent in the world somehow. So, you know, what are you going to do? How are you going to take advantage of that? And so you obviously did pretty well and got yourself to a good college. What was it like, you know, coming from the background that you did being at Stanford? I did end up at Stanford getting my MBA for grad school. I ended up going for undergrad. So that's just after high school. For my undergraduate degree, I went to a small private college called Amherst College, about 1,500 people. It was half the size of my my high school. And uh, I went to a big public urban high school. And then I went to a, you know, very kind of private, you would say, sort of elite college in um, not an urban setting, in a rural setting, absolutely stunning in Western Massachusetts. And that was in some ways a shock, but it was also eye-opening in terms of the world that was out there. And I feel like given the fact that I've moved around a bit, I lived on the East Coast, the West Coast, obviously down in Australia, I've really tried to embrace some of those differences and then either be inspired or learn from the different settings. I think I'm pretty good at going into new settings or different settings because I've had to kind of do that since a young age. As you say, you did an undergraduate degree and then you did an MBA. And it feels like the first part of your career was pretty sort of stereotypical, you know, sort of Goldman Sachs and bigger organizations. But then I was really interested that you had a year off effectively volunteering. What was that experience like? After undergrad, I got a job on Wall Street at Goldman Sachs and and was kind of slaving away, learning a little bit about business in one of these financial analyst programs in the big investment banks. Um, which was was amazing, but seriously burned me out. I had done a bit of volunteering in Harlem while I was there. And and actually, one of the programs I worked on was helping teach kids a bit about business. These are, you know, primary and, and uh, secondary age kids in, I wouldn't say tough neighborhood, but lower income neighborhood in Harlem. And the light kind of went on for me there. And so at the end of my two-year analyst program, I looked around and, and decided, oh, I want to actually go do something radically different. I would like to go and focus on some kind of economic development initiative or maybe something to do with kids or you know urban development. And I found an organization called the One-to-One Partnership, which was using mentoring and entrepreneurship as a way to help at-risk kids out of poverty. And so I actually spent a year working with that organization, which was was amazing, um, very eye-opening for me. I walked in thinking as an investment banker, well, I was bottom of the totem pole investment banker, so junior, junior B, uh, that I knew a lot. But actually, the first time I walked into some meetings with community groups and learned a little bit more about the kids who were trying to help, I think it was very eye-opening and helped me see that I had a lot to learn. So that was super inspiring. I did ultimately decide to go to business school after that, but the focus had shifted a bit onto doing some entrepreneurship and also doing some public service work. So when I went to grad school, I was part of what's called the public management program, which was something you could do alongside your MBA to to focus on community-oriented and not-for-profit sector stuff. And then while I was there, 
I also started a not-for-profit that has similar focus to the one I've worked at. We were using microloans and entrepreneurial training to help low-income entrepreneurs succeed and, and try and move out of poverty. So there was kind of a theme running there that was inspired off of that year in Washington, D.C. And then from there to consulting? Yes. So not very entrepreneurial. <laughs> After you know doing all that work, I did decide that I wanted to still learn more about business generally. And having done the investment banking thing and learned a bit about finance, I thought, oh, well, I can learn a bit about strategy and general management going into consulting. And I also got the opportunity to come down to Sydney, Australia, to help with a, a small office that was growing at Bain. And so I set foot in Australia in November of, or late October of 1994, long time ago. And it was absolutely love at first sight. And I, I ended up, although I've lived back in the U.S., ended up meeting my wife in the early weeks of my time in Sydney and, um, and obviously settling here. And so then it just, it seems like your whole journey in terms of entrepreneurship and venture then really started once you left Bain and at sort of at the height of late 2000s tech expansion. What were those times like? Yeah. So um, the late 1990s, I guess you'd say during the first internet boom, I had a friend who was the first product manager at Netscape, which was commercializing a browser, Mark Andreessen, and then Mark Andreessen's company. And then he had a bunch of friends who were working in the internet world. So when I decided I was going to leave Baines, I had enough of uh, consulting and they had enough of me as well, I'm sure. I joined my first startup, a company called HomeShark, of all things. And we were doing, we were one of the first online mortgage companies. And this was 96. So really early on internet days. And it was just, it was just amazing, the boom uh, going on there. And People have maybe read about or actually lived through all the, I wouldn't say excesses, but there was a ton of capital available. Companies went public really, really early. You were rewarded for, for growth, top line growth in particular, and kind of announceables and things like that. Our company raised $100 million and grew to about 400 people very quickly. And we filed to go public and then the market crashed and we were so... I would say overcapitalized, but we had a ton of expenses, a huge burn rate of, I think, $2 million a month. And uh, we quickly burned through our, our capital as we were waiting for the markets to reopen. Of course, they didn't. And so we ended up having to break off bits of the company one by one and sell them off or shut them down. We laid off huge amounts of people, tried to find um, homes for people with businesses that we sold off. And I was pretty much the last person out the door to kind of turn off the lights when we end up selling everything. So I kind of rode that all the way up. I was in plane number seven, I believe, and then all the way up to say 380 and then all the way back down. But it was pretty, pretty amazing. Was it soul destroying or was it one of those experiences that, that you're sort of glad that you had the opportunity to live through because you've learned lots from it? It was definitely difficult at the time, especially things like layoffs and the, frankly, the personal challenges around thinking, hey, I'm, you know, executive, early executive in this company, had a decent equity stake, company's going to go public, it's going to be worth X amount. And, you know, got into that counting the chickens type situation, um, had friends and family that invested in the company and, you know, had all that side of it as well. So definitely, you know, there's the business not succeeding and 
and kind of the feeling of that. There's the layoffs and obviously the the challenges and difficulties for people who lost their jobs, and then the kind of financial ups and downs as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, you come through that. I was fairly young at the time. I think I was still under, probably under 30 or around 30. So I knew I had a lot ahead of me and I had a pretty soft landing in that I was given the opportunity to come and spend a year working with a venture firm um, that had backed our company. So even though they they lost uh, practically all of their money on the investment, at least you know they offered a chance offered me a chance to go work with them again. So I spent a year as an entrepreneur in residence at a firm called Altos Ventures and really enjoyed that. And that's what kind of led me into the venture side of things as well. And it seems like you've been able to translate the skills you've developed in business and, and as an entrepreneur into being a great investor, but it sort of feels like you've also been able to go backwards and forwards from being a full-time investor to, to doing a bit more entrepreneurial work. Has that sort of just happened by accident or is that something that you've really tried to actually target? Didn't really try and target it. It was a bit of, of circumstances. I think it's helped me be a better investor going back and forth. I've worked in now three different venture back companies and I've, I've started uh, my own venture back company and, you know, help grow that internationally. And just having gone through that process, I think you have a bit more empathy. You can, you can speak firsthand about some of the issues you faced. And I think that's probably both credible and a little more accessible to entrepreneurs you're talking to if you've actually gone through it. It's a little bit better than than sitting there and saying, oh, I was, you know, as an investor in this company, I say X, Y, and Z. And it's like, no, I actually made this mistake. Let me tell you what happened and how I felt. And it did work out. I had a, um, you know, great experience in education at one of the first venture firms down here in Australia called Technology Venture Partners. That also went through a, a kind of boom and a bust. I came in after the downturn in 2002 and was there till 2008 when we were trying to raise our our next fund, it would have been our fourth fund. And 2008, of course, was the GFC. So that was very difficult to raise money out of. You think it's hard to raise money out of super funds now. Back then, in the after the GFC, it was very hard. And so I ended up leaving. And out of necessity, to your point, out of necessity, I went and found something entrepreneurial to do because there weren't really there were some jobs, but there weren't that many jobs out there. So I thought, oh, okay, maybe it's a good opportunity to go back and um, get a little more hands-on. I probably was just thinking of the the things that I learned as a founder and being in a business. I probably was a pretty shit investor. I mean, I think I was, I probably, you know, hopefully made some good decisions, but probably to deal with as a director, I was, I think I probably lacked some of the empathy that uh, I do today. At least I I can imagine that that's that's the case, but um, really good experience in terms of my my education and working with both the rest of the investment team and the and the founders I work with. As you say, you've been living in Australia for twenty five years. How's the sort of venture landscape changed over that time? Probably goes without saying, it's pretty dramatic change. One of the biggest changes is in those early days of the early two thousands, you had to work so hard to convince somebody to join a startup as opposed to going to work for CBA or Macquarie or something like that. So your top talent was coming out of unis and all they wanted to do is go work for these big financial services organizations or the consulting firms or what have you. And if you fast forward to today, of course, thanks to the likes of Atlassian and, and other folks, lots and lots and lots of students coming out of unis have 
started their businesses or want to go work for a startup or, you know, there's some household names here that really attract people into tech startup land that, you know, just wasn't the case. So if you just start from that point on like, where's the talent going, it's just dramatic. And then I think other things that have happened, uh, other big changes are the cost of starting a company have changed dramatically with AWS and all the processing power and, you know, various object-oriented software and all that sort of stuff. You can actually build a company for, build an app and things like that for almost nothing, whereas it was very expensive back then. And you can also sell online and you can sell globally from day one. That's a huge difference. And then flow of capital. There's not only just lots of capital, but there's lots of capital flows across borders that didn't used to be the case. So the old model was you had to raise a lot of funding here and then fund all the expenses of going and setting up in the US and then raising money over there. And it just added literally millions of dollars of cost to the business. So all that's changed from the flow of people, the cost of actually running a business, the flow of capital. It's pretty dramatic. We have a really well-educated population. It's something that, you know, we do well. But how good are we at translating what exciting things are happening inside universities into technology that we can commercialize? That challenges why Main Sequence exists, um, our firm. We're, yeah, very good, world-ranked in a number of areas in research. And I saw that with my own startup building IQ that I started based off of CSRO, technology and science. That's a good example where world-leading researchers developing amazing algorithms to optimize energy use in buildings and uh, absolutely at the front end of the market. And at the time I got a license to it, it was going to be, the project was going to be canned. It was going to be canned by the research team later because it just was seen as a little bit too commercial and they didn't really have a sense for the, the opportunity with it. And yeah, you just see that despite having attracted people from all over the world to come to Australia and develop all these, you know, talented research areas, we remain, you know, woefully behind in actually being able to translate that technology into actual market-based solutions. And so that's, yeah, that's the challenge we're, we're trying to tackle. And so thinking about the companies that you've invested in at Main Sequence, it's so hard to pick out favorites, but are there any that you would cite as sort of examples that you're really proud of that you've made investments in? Uh, I love all our companies equally. I'll talk about some of my companies that I'm really I'm really proud to be part of. If we're talking about just the research side of things, I'd say Emicent is one. So Emicent, um, I call it sci-fi with an ROI. Um, what they do is they make autonomous drones and other technology to do mapping, really efficient, accurate mapping in underground and kind of subsurface areas. So a little bit little bit obscure there, but hugely high value. So they make a technology that enables a drone to fly through a mine and navigate through obstacles and even water and dust and things like that, create a, a very, very accurate 3D map and then bring that back to a safe place. So without having to send people into a mine or what have you. And there's a bunch of flow on applications that they have, but that's that's kind of the sci-fi that they have. And that was based on about 10 years of research inside Syro's um, robotics group. That robotics group is as big as Carnegie Mellon's robotics group. So it's actually you know, very much world-class. 
And this is a product that's come, you know, come out of that. And now they're in about 30 some odd countries or one of our fastest growing companies. That's one. I think that's a really good example of research in terms of a spin out. Another one that people will know is uh, V2 food. Probably everyone has tried some V2 somewhere. V2 is an example of something we do called venture science, where we're actually the founder of the company alongside a couple other founders. But the idea doesn't necessarily come from the scientists, like at Emerson, where it was their project and they're kind of taking it out to commercialize it. We're actually going to the research institution and saying, hey, do you have anything that can help solve this problem? And then we actually are, um, like I mentioned, founders in the business with uh, several other parties. And then we take that forward in partnership and shared equity ownership with a research institution and, and other folks. That's another one that's obviously doing doing quite well and in the press a lot. And then another one that I work with is this company called Regrow. It used to be called Fluorosat, uh, run by Anastasia Bolkova. And Anastasia is an independent deep tech founder, we'd call her. So kind of founder-led business, but she's got a PhD and a couple of master's degree. She's a PhD in aeronautical engineering. And she identified the opportunity to use satellite data or remote sensing data from drones or satellites to help farmers improve productivity. And what I love about that business, I mean, anybody who knows Anastasia is, is amazed by Anastasia. She's incredible. But also, I think it's been the learning that the company has gone through to navigate what's a pretty challenging environment of the agriculture world. Probably know there, Catherine, just going in, trying to sell a product to farmers when, you know, they're in a year of drought or what have you, you know, there are all sorts of challenges that are outside of your control. And so what I really admire about Regrow is they have, we, we would say Anastasia is our, our best learner, quote unquote, learner CEO, because she has just, she's always just sucking up information. They've done, I wouldn't call them pivots, but they've refined what they're doing. They've acquired two businesses in order to build on their business and, and change direction a bit. And they're now a world leader in a, in a very different space, which is in helping food companies source sustainable products for like anyone from a Cargill to a Kellogg's to General Mills. They will use the satellite data to be able to measure the sustainability in the farmer's production and help the farmers get paid for producing more sustainable goods. And that's off of, you know, when we first backed Anastasia and it was just a small handful of people. Now they're probably 60, 70 people. They've raised a bunch of money over in the US. So as a learner, like independent founder-led business with amazing learning skills and ambition, I'd say that one's my favorite. One of the things I can imagine is difficult at Main Sequence is you've got a mandate to have quite a broad spectrum that you can invest in. And as you say, there's venture science where you're actually taking the idea and proving it out by making it a business. What are the criteria you look for to know that this is a company or an idea that you want to invest in? I mean, it is challenging. We also see a lot of ideas and say no to a lot of things, including probably a bunch of things that could be amazing. So for us, we have a reasonably large size fund. We're say between 250 and $300 million fund. And so that really means that we have to invest in a certain size of an opportunity. Obviously, if you're an angel investor, you can make money putting smaller checks in and the company being sold for, you know, even five or 10 or $15 million could be a fantastic outcome for everybody. 
And with our size fund, we're looking for much bigger opportunities. And I guess the easiest rule of thumb, the rule of thumb we use is we really want to have an opportunity to where the company could get to at least $100 million in revenue within a reasonable amount of time. So that frames up some of the ways we look at the scale of the company and the business model. The other thing is we really want to back companies that are transforming an industry. It's not enough to be something that's incremental, but is something that's really transforming. If they're successful, then the industry is going to change the way they're doing things. Uh, that's another criteria. And then the the other one that I'm not the only person who talks about this is just the founder and having the right kind of founder or founding team that has ambition to to really change the world. They'll, you know, knock down every every door and wall to to get there. And they can also attract people to join the team that are world class because they're never going to do it alone. And the ability to recruit and sell is just hugely important. And then obviously we have all the research side of things as well, but that's all kind of a given. But I'd say, yeah, it's the size of the opportunity. Is it really transforming an industry? and then the founding team. And you'll look at opportunities wherever they come from. They don't have to come from CSIRO or from universities necessarily. You'll Yeah, I mean, Regra is a good example. So yeah, it was an independent. I mean, Anastasia went to UCID. Our idea is the, the company has to be powered by research. And so that can happen any public research in Australia. So that could be uh, the Garvin Institute or publicly funded research, I should say. So it could be the Garvin Institute, it could be University of Melbourne, it could be the CRC for data and decisions, or it could be the CSRO. So it's it's really, I think there's at least 50 institutions that qualify. And yeah, they can be kind of founder-led businesses that have some kind of collaboration with a research institution. They could They could originate in the research institution, or we could partner with the research institution to start the business. And for you personally, as a partner at Main Sequence, what's your sort of special area of interest? We try and divide up in challenge areas. We have six different challenge areas. I lead the industrial productivity area, which is things like applied AI, robotics, specialized data solutions, even some new materials and things like that. I also work um, with Bill Barty, who leads the Next Intelligence Leap, which the area I work in there is in cybersecurity or data governance, kind of next generation. So if you think about the future of how we're going to live and work and the future threats we'll be under, whether it's ensuring privacy of information or fighting off automated threats, malicious threats from nation states or or other criminals, uh, things like that. I work in that area. And then Ag and Food, I work with Phil Morrill and Gabs Munzer, who are in that area. And so we're working across the Ag and Food system, supply chain, on-farm solutions. And then we've done a lot in sort of the new foods and new ingredients area. And you seem to be fantastic in terms of supporting your companies by taking a, a board seat often. What's the relationship like that you you sort of have ideally with the the companies you invest in? Yeah, so we're, I think we're all fairly active um, to the extent we can be. And and so I think we filter a little bit for that in in the types of people we work with. They've got to be open to engaging with us. Ultimately, it comes down to trust. You want to have a trusting relationship with the person you're working with. You're going to be working with them for, could be 10 years. 
about, I think, my relationship with, with Anastasia or Stefan and Farid at, at Emocent. It's a trusting relationship. Of course, there are moments of, uh, I won't call them friction, but where maybe our interests differ a little bit of like when we invest uh, and we want to buy in at a certain price or get certain rights or what have you. There's a bit of that, but I'd say, you know, we're supporting these businesses through multiple rounds of funding, multiple transactions. And I think, I would hope at least, if you talk to our founders or my founders, they'd say that, hey, even though there have been different points where we've had, you know, certain differences, there's a really strong relationship based on trust there. And I think we would both say we have our each, other, each other's best interests at heart. And given that your investments are primarily research-led, is there a bit of an education piece on the commercial side for some of your founders, given that you've come from a, a sort of commercial background? Is there a sort of upskilling that needs to happen? Sometimes. The, these, the folks were, were backing one of the, the terms we use um, that I was mentioning earlier is this whole kind of learner versus knower mentality. And certainly you like founders that know enough about their their focus area to know what the problems are and have an idea about how to solve. But ultimately, in these emerging areas of deep tech, you need to be a learner. So you need to be able to go out and, and learn about a space and the trends and how things are changing. And I think the same would apply on the commercial side is people typically will come into these companies knowing that they need to skill up a bit on the commercial side. Some have very natural instincts and natural abilities anyway to do early selling and things like that. And I'd say they're learning. I think they're great salespeople. So a lot of times they're evangelizing their business to bring in the right other team members to help grow the commercial side of things. And then if we can be a sounding board for them as needed on the commercial side, that's plus you you want the company to ultimately have full-time people in the business who are who can run all the commercials and all that. You don't want to be running the business as a board member for sure. So I think it's more about upskilling, the CEO upskilling or the founding team upskilling and then bringing the right commercial teams around them. And that learning versus knowing approach to life, is that one of the reasons that you like being a venture investor? Because presumably you can never know enough about, you know, Mm. there's always people that know more than you. Oh, that's definitely, oh, that's, Definitely true. I'm sometimes just in awe of the fact that I have this job, honestly, because even the people we don't back are doing just amazing things. And you have the the opportunity to learn about the problems they're trying to solve and also the passion that they have around solving the problem, what's, what's driving them. And I find that just hugely inspiring. I'd say I'm probably the least technical person on the main sequence team. And so if you, if you you know, just kind of review my background there, you didn't hear anything about engineering or science or, or any of that. And so I'm, you know, just someone who's going to be, I'm never going to be the most knowledgeable about a particular scientific or technical area. Hopefully I can bring, you know, some of that commercial experience. And of course we have with the partnership we have with CSRO, then we have access to that whole like treasure trove of expertise and capability, which really helps me. When you're thinking about giving advice to founders when they're thinking about raising capital, what's some of the best advice you can give them? Of course, depends on the stage and all that, but I'd say know the people that you're going after, not just the firms, but actually get down to the people and why they're a good fit for your business. I think that's that's really important. And I think about my own experience uh, fundraising, you know, you wanted to 
have people involved on your board or as investors that can really add value to your business and understand your business. And there's enough investors out there that you should be able to try and identify the best folks for what you're doing. So I'd say do your homework on the investors. And that's number one. And just pausing that. Yeah. How practically do you have tips for doing that? Because presumably it's a bit difficult for entrepreneurs to sort of interview investors to the point they might like yeah. to. Is there practical tips you've got for, to accelerate that sort of understanding if they're the right fit for you? Oh, there's so, there's so much information there. Look at, you know, the, the firm's website and figure out who's involved in what companies. It's number one. You can go to their LinkedIn page and look at, you know, their LinkedIn profile and look at their background and the types of things they're doing. You can typically find either podcasts or YouTubes or what have you. So you can learn about the the investors and, you know, topics they've spoken on, what they think is interesting, et cetera. And then you can also, and it's shocking how many people don't do this, go talk to some founders that they work with. One of our CEOs, I was so impressed, obviously helping on the fundraising, particularly overseas. Hey, we're thinking about, you know, this person, what do you think? Oh, I had a chat with a, you know, a founder in that person's portfolio, and I'm concerned it's not a fit because of X, Y, and Z, or this person be great and got really good feedback because of, you know, ABC. You know, it's just that level of insight that you really need because you don't you don't want to enter these relationships kind of lightly. They're going to be long term. If everything goes well, they'll be working with you for 10 years at least. And so um, you want to kind of ferret that out. So advice tip number two. I actually think talking to investors before you need money is a really good, really good habit to get into just to to build a relationship. Investors don't like to, even though sometimes they're forced to, like just up and invest in a company at a point in time, just have a relationship that or a transaction that starts, you know, 90 days before you invest. And so if you have an opportunity to reach out, ask for advice, or just the opportunity to tell an investor what you're doing, I think that's a good way to start. It also gives an investor, the, the other thing I like is, hey, I met with you three months ago. You said you were going to do this. I've now seen you again. You actually did do that or you did that and more. I think that's a really good way to roll. So that's number two, I think. Then the other thing is don't do it sequentially. Actually run a process, even though it's super disruptive to your business. I think the best outcome for you as a founder will be if if you're talking to a number of firms at the same time and you have a process that is a kind of finite process that comes to you you know, ahead at some point, hopefully with multiple parties interested because you want a choice. Yeah, that's great advice. And before we started recording, you mentioned that you're not a big reader of non-fiction, but it feels like increasingly fiction and non-fiction become blurred when you talk about technology, sort of the world of science fiction increasingly feels like it becomes reality. What sort of stuff do you read? And, you know, does that feed your imagination about what the future might look like? Yes and no. I, I do like to read for more distraction. I'd, I'd probably be embarrassed to run you through the list of, of stuff that helps me fall asleep at night. But I kind of like to disappear, to be honest, in the books. I do like historical fiction. That's the other thing I read a bit of. And so it's probably less about the sci-fi in the future. I do a bit of that on, on TV or something. Or frankly, in my day job, I'm seeing the future all the time. And for my reading, I probably do a bit more like disappearing into some you know, spy thrillers or, or kind of historical fiction or something like that. So 
Last question, what are you really excited and optimistic about? It's going to sound very cliche, but I'm actually in the whole sustainability area, I would say, and, and probably more broadly ESG. I think there's a, a perfect storm that's coming together now where you've got, you know, thankfully a pretty strong economy, but you've also got a whole wave of investors, like institutional investors that are, whether they're, um, you know, sovereign funds or pension funds or what have you, that are really requiring a lot more concrete actions on the sustainability front. They're requiring companies that they're invested in to take action. And that is translating to boards being accountable. It's translating to executives um, being accountable to the point of where they have pay tied to outcomes on ESG metrics, in particular on the sustainability side. And that like with the regrow or some of our other companies, it is actually translating into programs that are getting rolled out and solutions that are getting spending on. So, I mean, there are, there are many, many opportunities across say our challenge areas, but I think something that feels pretty unique right now is that sustainability is not just happening in, you know, one, one part of a value chain or a supply chain, but it's actually now flowing through from the investor capital all the way through to, um, you know, into the supply chain for real programs. And that means amazing opportunities for, for innovative solutions at the startup side of things as well. Fantastic to see an Australian investor like Main Sequence being the leader in dragging some of that, you know, smarts out of the lab and getting it into the hands of, of real world solutions to problems. And there's been, you know, some fantastic stories come out of the main sequence portfolio. So it's fabulous to spend some time with you. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs. Scale Founded, a five-day short course combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.